The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from Sparta Chicks Radio, where I discuss LCHF and polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. You will learn the criteria for diagnosis of PCOS and how this differs from PCO and how many cases are actually still undiagnosed. We explore how to use your menstrual cycle as a barometer, the significance of PCOS as a metabolic syndrome, the role of LCHF in the management of this condition, if supplements should be part of the intervention, and so much more. I hope you enjoy hearing me on the other side of the microphone this week. Steph, welcome back to Sparta Chicks Radio. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back, not only because our last conversation, which was in August 2018, six, six months ago now, was so popular. It, was, it turned out to be the fifth most popular of the episode of the entire year. I saw that on Instagram. That's wonderful. I'm glad everyone's loving what we're chatting about. And I've had so many questions um, following up from that conversation, both of what you shared in the conversation and from what people have gleaned from my experience Mm -hmm. over the last six weeks as well. So Love it. Yeah, I think we're changing lives. So good. So good to hear. Now, that first conversation was pretty wide-ranging and we covered, um, I guess in some ways it it was... a high-level discussion around nutrition and gut health and their impact on everything from your hormonal cycle and PMS and immune, um, your immune system and even 330-itis, which I'm <laughs> happy to say I no longer suffer from. Um, but what I wanted to do this time is to dive into one specific health issue that affects a lot of women. A lot of my clients struggle with this, and that is polycystic ovarian syndrome or po- PCOS. <laughs> yes. Let's call it PCOS, shall Let's we? Let's call it PCOS. 
and the impact that nutrition can have on it because I was at the Living Low Carb event back in December at which you were speaking and one of the other speakers just made a passing remark about how this was something that nutrition was one of the main ways to treat it and I I sort of thought I almost got whiplash at, at how quickly my head bolted up and I was like what really oh, no. yeah so I know. And that's a really important conversation to have because it's not what people are taught if that's your experience and there are other people, yeah, that are thinking it's there's either no cure or it's only medical in nature. Yeah. So now this is something I have not experienced before. So some of my questions are going to be pretty basic and, and going back to fundamentals, but I thought it'd be a good way also to set the foundations for some women who might be suffering some of these symptoms and perhaps have not put the pieces together yet. Mm. But what is POCOS? PCOS, yeah. PCOS. So <laughs> it's actually diagnosed as a metabolic condition, which you know, we'll start to unpack how, of course, nutrition will play a role there. But to actually get the diagnosis, you need to meet um, two of the following criteria. So you've had an ultrasound where there's polycystic ovaries that appear. So these, they're not cysts, they're actually ovaries that contain a high density of partially mature follicles. So that's visible via an ultrasound, um, but it often comes with an irregular menstrual cycle and or increased male hormones in, such as testosterone on a blood test, which can come with symptoms such as um, hair growth on the face or breasts or acne, so skin issues as well. So you've got to have the um, ultrasound, but it can definitely come with a number of factors. But, yeah, the diagnosis will, will be given when you've got at least two of the above. Okay. And then so there's a difference between PCOS, which is the metabolic condition, and mm. simply, and I don't mean simply by simply, I mean separately having polycystic ovaries. Yeah, and that's a really important clarification because, it might say PCO, so PCO, which is not the actual syndrome. It's not a disease, but it is a variant of having like quote unquote normal ovaries. So um, what we would see on an ultrasound is still the high density of ovaries, um, sorry, pardon me, the ovaries containing the high density of the follicles, but often there's no other symptoms associated with that. So PCO or PCO is definitely more prevalent, um, but um, PCOS is, I think it's affecting about 12 to 18% of women, which is, is still pretty high, especially considering that a lot are undiagnosed because you might have the symptoms of an irregular period and you might not do any further investigation or you might get some... Um, extra hair growth but not actually get your testosterone levels tested so you don't actually get the criteria to be diagnosed with that metabolic condition so I think the stats are often a little bit incorrect because of the undiagnosed cases that we see as well mm. but even running from that 10 to 12 percent of women that's assuming our population's at 24 million in Australia so far that's a hell of a lot of women who are suffering it from is. this yeah, absolutely. It is. And there are some, you know, there's short and long-term effects, which we'll talk about. So it is important 
I actually think to use our menstrual cycle as a barometer, and we aren't taught this in high school, which I think should be hopefully changing soon. We, most of us, I think, um, would go to a doctor and if we had any conversation around our period or any um, PMS or pain, we would have been prescribed or at least offered the pill. What we weren't taught is how to understand our own hormonal cycle and learn about our menstrual cycle. And, you know, I'm teaching women of all ages this at The Natural Nutritionist and I love that we have that conversation because a normal menstrual cycle is a huge barometer of overall health and we don't talk about it. (laughs) No, we don't and we assume that if our menstrual cycle is all over the shop then that's just our hormones and that's just what we're stuck with. Yeah, or we're told to deal with it later if we're a little bit younger or, yeah, we, we only sort of look at a Western route, which don't get me wrong, that you know, the medical um, world exists for a very good reason, but there's so much more to it than maybe just using the pill as a Band-Aid because that's what we see. If there isn't irregular periods, which we've discussed is one of the criteria that needs to be met to be diagnosed with PCOS, then, you know, the, the first solution is not to take a pill and put a Band-Aid over the problem. There's so many more things we can do to regulate the menstrual cycle, which is a huge part of managing and even, like, reversing PCOS. Mm. It's quite amazing. I was This is a slight side transition, but I was only thinking this morning that in my own instance I know I've learnt the, the moods and the signs and the symptoms that I'm in that PMS phase um even now no longer having a a period because i've had the hysterectomy but i couldn't tell you what happens the rest of the month i couldn't Mm. tell you how i've never tracked yet um (laughs) mood changes and energy changes and all those other things that are a byproduct of our cycle well, I think if there's one takeaway that everybody starts doing that because there are apps these days, like the one that I normally suggest is Clue, C-L-U-E, but there are many versions of that these days. You know, even if you're not actually having a regular menstrual cycle, you are having hormonal fluctuations. You are a woman, so you have four seasons in a month. So, you know, obviously when you have the actual period, it's easier to track things because everything revolves around that day or those those days um, at the start of your cycle but with even without that you can still observe commonalities that you feel always tired mid-month or always craving chocolate at around about this time of the month like that's not a coincidence if you map that you can start to see you can actually start to work out what imbalances might exist and I think it's actually a really great barometer so taking just a little bit of time to log um, any symptoms, but also to understand if you are ovulating, which we can talk about, is very important for women of, you know, that what we say fertile or childbearing age. Mm. I still can't believe that we're 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 not taught this, and no. you know, many of us are in our thirties, forties, even later, are just learning about this stuff. Totally, it's mind blowing. It really is. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole nother tension we could go down. <laughs> yeah, stay on track. Mm-hmm. Okay, so getting back to PCOS, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned some of the criteria, the two criteria that are necessary for diagnosis, mm-hmm. but are there any other signs or symptoms that one should look out for or, or that might indicate that, that you have this condition? 
I think actually a big one is weight gain or challenges with weight loss. This is where we start to look at that metabolic nature of the condition or the the disease essentially because the underlying condition is insulin resistance. And if our body is in that state of insulin resistance, then we are naturally going to be in a fat storage mode, not a fat burning mode. So unfortunately, the the body is, you know, stuck in this vicious cycle because the high insulin that's present in that situation also then interferes with our hormonal balance, which then continues to contribute to PCOS and the insulin, pardon me, <clears throat> the insulin resistance is also going to uh, make it quite challenging for us to make the right food choices, which is part of the, or which are part of the nutritional strategy to treat insulin resistance, which is essentially low carb, healthy fat. Um, that is why we actually use low carb, healthy fat in cases of PCOS because it actually reverses the underlying insulin resistance. So, you know, that space at the moment is largely in the type 2 diabetes conversation. So, you know, people are finally learning that low carb, healthy fat can be used to reverse type 2 and that's because it gets rid of the underlying insulin resistance but it's actually very similar in the case of PCOS because you've got to get rid of the insulin resistance to start to rebalance the hormones and to be able to shift the weight Um, and then you know that's a really positive cycle where without insulin resistance you aren't necessarily going to be craving the foods that have partly contributed to where you've gotten to in the first place. It just becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? Absolutely. And and cravings aren't, you know, they don't come out of the blue. They aren't just there for no reason. As you learnt with 3.30-itis, it's not a dissimilar conversation. You were experiencing 3.30-itis because of your previous food choices. And cravings, yes, they are hormonal in nature, but they largely come from the carbs that we have eaten and the poor blood sugar that results. And that is the start of developing insulin resistance. So it's absolutely going to come back to addressing that as one of the largest areas to help, yeah, as I said, manage, reverse, or even put PCOS into remission. It's it's fascinating to me that insulin resistance can cause such can cause this condition mm. or disease. I think we all understand the link between insulin resistance and diabetes, for example, these days. But these yeah. other conditions we're now recognizing that have this underlying thread of insulin resistance is quite amazing. Yeah, there's lots of mechanisms, and with PCOS, it's slightly different. As I mentioned, the insulin stimulates the production of the androgens, which disturbs things like ovulation and the entire cycle. But really, if we look kind of top level, it's inflammation. So that is what insulin is going to cause in excess. It's inflammation, which is why we also see those short and long-term risks of PCOS looking like diabetes, gestational diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity. They're all inflammatory-related conditions that start and have, you know, part of the part of the um, disease development is with that high insulin and the inflammatory cascade that follows. So is there anyone who's particularly high at risk of PCOS? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, There is a genetic component, which I think does need to be acknowledged, but we can't blame our genes. Um, There's definitely a genetic component that we would then say, all right, the environment pulls the trigger, yeah? So if you've got family history of hormonal imbalances or fertility issues or if someone um, in your immediate family has been diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, then if you follow a very Western diet and eat a lot of refined carbohydrates, you definitely have the, or you may create the ability where you turn on those genes. So it's, you know, we say the, um, the environment pulls the trigger. Yep. And so, you know, that's, that's something that you might not know about. <laughs> so you don't run the risk. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you would move away from refined carbohydrates, right? <laughs> um, as we discussed last time. Yes. Um, other sort of risk factors um, are definitely an imbalanced gut, which, again, we briefly touched on last time. But the, the unfortunate irony, if I circle back to what I discussed before about, you know, what most of us have probably been through is the suggestion or the prescription to take the pill. Now, we know, unfortunately, the oral contraceptive pill is one of the main reasons that starts to interrupt our our gut health and interfere with our balance of beneficial flora or bacteria and that's going to impair your gut health which actually starts to predispose you to that dysregulation of hormones that we see in a PCOS situation. Wow so it just puts you on the downward spiral towards it. Yeah I mean I I, that's a bit dramatic. I mean, there's unfortunately, we can't, I mean, it's a tricky conversation to have because a lot of us just have been taking the pill as a way to regulate our cycle or to avoid having um, a family at this point in time. And it's, it's like, it's kind of an easy solution, but we haven't acknowledged the side effects. And I think it's, this is a conversation that's coming, um, that we're having a lot more frequently. And I, and I think it is really important because there's, a lot of women that find out many, many years of um, after being on the pill that they've got all this work to do from a fertility and hormonal point of view, which, you know, I believe they should have been informed of initially so they could have made a much more informed decision. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we can speak about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just thinking back when I went on the pill 20-something um, <clears throat> years ago and um, – there was no discussion about side effects whatsoever. No. I had my one concern was putting weight on. I was like, "Is this going to make make me put on weight?" But I, the doctor certainly didn't discuss any side effects with me at the time. No, I don't remember that either. I'm just lucky that I was terrible at taking it consistently <laughs> that I never did. Um, I must have known deep down, but I never actually took it. Whereas I've got women, you know, got female clients that are coming in. Probably the most common scenario now is um, now that I'm pregnant, I'm attracting all these women that are wanting to um, have a baby as it so happens. And um, yeah, they, they just really like having this massive realization that 20 years on the pill um, is often going to mean um, way more time than you predicted to to be able to conceive naturally Mm. yeah yeah it's a bit scary I was just thinking as you were talking then I mean who knows about the link between the pill and for example I had to have a hysterectomy because of (laughs) very active fibroids so Mm. you know 
maybe maybe that was a factor who knows yeah Absolutely. The other risk factor I did want to mention, though, just to go back to your, your um, question, is actually stress. And this is something that, um, you know, I know that we speak about, but um, psychological stress is definitely part of the equation because, you know, obviously PCOS is a stressor itself, which is that chronic cycle of then contributing more so to the hormonal and metabolic imbalances. But, um, stress has a huge role in chronic inflammation, which causes things like weight gain or um, challenges with fertility or acne. And then we are in that vicious cycle where we're actually like promoting the contributing factors to actually achieve that diagnosis, which is obviously not what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, and so we talk about insulin resistance and inflammation, but it's also really acknowledging the significance of stress and inflammation and why we have to then address both as part of the natural treatment protocol. Mm. I was going to ask you later on if uh, stress management and rejuvenation practices, especially mm. those recommended by our friend Katie Pettuccini, <laughs> were going to come in. Yeah. They, they, they're always linked, you know, because you can't go low-carb, healthy fat or you can't control your blood sugar or become a fat burner and ignore stress because it has the opposite desired effect. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that everyone that's stressed gets PCOS or everyone that has insulin resistance gets PCOS or vice versa. That's not how it works. But it just means that there's a greater risk factor and um, that if, you know, if you've been diagnosed with PCOS, then, yeah, make your first two goals to solve or to at least find out if you have got insulin resistance, um, which we can talk about how you would do that, but also to acknowledge that stress management is going to be part of the equation. Okay. So so what's the traditional, conventional, Western, typical GP doctor approach to treating or managing PCOS? Sometimes it is the pill. Okay. Yeah. And what's the, what's the purpose of putting on the pill? Is that the theory being that it regulates hormone and the period which is obviously one of the symptoms the egg, the um the irregular cycle Got it. definitely yeah yeah so it's treating one of the symptoms rather than the cause yeah yep um other people like some people have like surgery to remove the cysts oh that's big yeah absolutely in general, though, like hopefully um, you are seeing someone that's a little bit less pharmaceutical orientated because if there is insulin resistance, you're likely going to be um, prescribed metformin, which is a drug that's used in diabetes and that um, associated insulin resistance. Um, sometimes there's testosterone-lowering testosterone drugs, um, even some antidepressants. Are prescribed <laughs> so most western options are definitely pharmaceutical which is again not dissimilar to what we we're talking about with the pill it's it's a band-aid solution so if one of the if one of your symptoms is high testosterone which is causing the PCOS taking a drug to lower that testosterone is masking the issue in you know as a nutritionist you would always go deeper and what's the root cause so why do i have high testosterone let me address that not just hide the symptom or the expression yes 
So that's, that's again, why we would look deeper and look at a really holistic approach, which largely includes, you know, diet and lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a, uh, that is such a Band-Aid approach to things, mm. isn't it? Because even if you take the pill to regulate the cycle, you may still have insulin resistance underneath that, which is going to cause you other health issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, insulin resistance is a progressive disease that is a pretty horrific way to um, shorten your lifespan. So going back to that question, you we may as well touch on it now, Going, you posed it slightly earlier. How, how do you diagnose for insulin resistance? Yeah, so there's lots of different blood tests you can do, but, I mean, really the gold standard would be to measure your HbA1c. So it stands for your glycated hemoglobin, which is a three-month measurement of like, the sugar that's essentially stuck to your red blood cells. So, you know, someone of a, of a healthy metabolic profile would have a HbA1c of 5.3%. And then insulin resistance starts to be diagnosed towards, like, it's really 6.5%. Um, but we see sort of, you know, the precursors at around about 6%. So it's a blood test any GP can do for you. They can also test your fasting insulin. The reference ranges are unfortunately... Um, not amazing in the West. Like we like to see an insulin of around about three or five, like three to five. Um, so just be mindful of when you get that test, who interprets it for you, because not having a disease is very different to optimal. Mm. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing the medical model. I think there's life-saving benefits of that. But I don't want to be told that I just don't have a disease. I want to be optimally healthy. And so that's why reference ranges can be quite skewed because they have been collected over decades from an average of the people that go to the doctors. Now, if you visualise the last time you were at a doctor's clinic, who's in the room with you? Are they optimally healthy and the kind of people that you aspire to uh, replicate their health? Like very rarely... Is, is that the case? So it's the, the averages are quite average. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I say HbA1c of 5.3% and an insulin of 3 to 5. Any higher than that and you're on the pathway towards insulin resistance, and then there's the official diagnosis at sort of 6.5%. Okay. Right, we're all running off to get our blood test this afternoon. <laughs> and people are like rewinding the interview to write down the numbers and the HbA1c, I get it. Good, please do take those notes. <laughs> oh, actually, well, that's a good point. I will take the notes and I will put them in the show notes for this episode, including the right. numbers. So just go check Amazing. the show notes. So what can be done? You've already alluded to how nutrition um, plays a big role. Well. Yeah, I think it's number one. I think the number one is to stabilize your blood sugar. And how do we do that? Well, it's going to be your version of LCHF. Now, to recap, that stands for lower carbohydrate healthy fat. So it's not zero carbs and it's not drowning your food in oil. It's <laughs> really just moving to a real food template. So most of your plate comes from plants or non-starchy veggies there's a small amount of high-quality protein, and then we get lots of fats from both omega-3s, which are our nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocados, you know, free-range eggs, grass-fed meats, and then small amounts of saturated fats 
from, you know, things like grass-fed butter, buying the chicken thighs or the breast or getting, you know, our grass-fed steaks if that's the way we choose to eat um, and a little bit of coconut oil or medium-chain flagosaride oil. And then as we would have discussed last time, just being really mindful of what sort of complex carbohydrates you do consume. You know, if you've been diagnosed with insulin resistance, then the to reverse that, I'd be cutting out most complex carbohydrates other than resistant starch. But if you're quite lean and you've got, you know, a fairly good metabolic profile, then you need to be including your sweet potato or your potato or a little bit of white rice, especially post-training to help with that muscle glycogen replenishment. But it's only a very small part of the equation. It's mostly plants, proteins, and healthy fats. And that stabilizes your blood sugar. And, you know, that's going to help everyone, regardless of PCOS or PCO or whatever it might be. It's actually all about nutrient density. And that's ultimately what we should be striving for when we look at food and how it impacts our health, but also our longevity. Yeah, you're preaching to the converted. I know. I what about supplements? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a client or have multiple clients who have yep. PCOS and I asked one of them what I should ask you mm-hmm. and she had two questions. One of them was about supplements and that she had heard something called inositol. Inositol had some yeah. decent evidence behind it. What's your view? I mean, first and foremost, I would make sure that before you're buying anything that is a supplement that you've addressed nutrition, like, cause that is the like lifelong strategy. You know, I think that we are very um, pill for an ill, <laughs> whether it's pharmaceutical or natural. Yeah. And it, it annoys me that we go there first. So I'll just get that off my chest. <laughs> um, there is, so the inositol conversation is quite interesting when it comes to PCOS because there is like some pretty much like pretty good research that is showing the right type of inositol supplement can really help manage PCOS, but we need to be able to separate, I guess, fact from fiction in the supplement industry. Um, there are a couple of different types of inositol. There's myo and dechiro, and it's actually important that the um, the inositol supplement contains both forms so that it actually is more absorbed and the research shows it's much more effective in helping to manage the PCOS. Um, some of the issue that I some of the issues that I have with the research though is that the they, you know the research is quoted all the time, but they're actually quite small studies. So I believe they're about an N of 50, which is 50 subjects. And maybe there is one that was up to about 100 subjects. Now, we can't really use that as a extrapolation to the entire population. So I'd be waiting to see much greater clinical trials with a much larger subject number before we, you know, spend all of our money and expect amazing results. Um, but, you know, when we talk about supplements, it's going to come back to quality. This is a little bit of a side note, but a lot of the um, inositol supplements also contain folic acid. Now, folic acid is 
that sort of preconception nutrient that we hear all about in countries like Australia, that our, um, you know, grains and cereals have been fortified with to avoid birth defects and spina bifida and it's products like Elevit that are recommended preconception. But there are actually, there is actually quite a high percentage of women that don't tolerate folic acid in its most synthetic form. And it might be totally off topic, but it is those with an MTHFR genetic mutation that really need to be mindful of um, products that contain folic acid. So that you really want to understand first. I think when PCOS is often found or diagnosed is quite often in a fertility conversation because a woman's trying to conceive and suddenly realises that it's not as easy as she predicted and then further research or further investigation is conducted and PCOS is diagnosed. So it is around a similar time of conception. So we actually don't want to start taking folic acid if we don't understand our genes and our ability to tolerate that nutrient. Um, you'd still take a prenatal but it'll be a methylfolate or a 5-MTHF. So it's just mindful that you look at what you're taking and make sure you understand all the ingredients because it's not that black and white. Wow. <laughs> Bit of a side note for you there. That's, a, that's an interesting side note, especially around the gene. Um, yeah. The gene because who knows, uh, unless you had specific testing for that, there's no way to know either way. No, which is why I think it's really lovely to work with a natural health practitioner for as part of your fertility plan because you can you can work all this out and then take the, the right prenatal but also be taught how to manage insulin resistance and, and help support your PCOS without the need for pharmaceutical intervention. And then what you're doing is ticking all your fertility boxes if you do want to have children. Um, and fertility is not just about making babies as well. There's other reasons why we want to have a normal menstrual cycle and, you know, you're, you probably learnt yourself, Jen, to to avoid having to um, have surgery and, and things like that. Absolutely, yep. If you had known what you know now, you know. Um, so that's something I think is really important to acknowledge because, yeah, we, we tend to jump to supplements. And I'm not saying don't take an inositol, but I would probably do it under the guidance of a practitioner to make sure that you're getting, you know, bang for your buck because they are expensive, um, but that you're not – what is it? Missing the forest for the trees, or yeah, well, what do we that, say? <laughs> uh, can't see the wood for the trees, or something. <laughs> yeah, whatever that one is. What's well, a great point too? You went, you said before that nutrition was the number one. Mm. You know, perhaps the most, the most important way to to manage and treat this disease. And if that represents like ninety percent of the solution, and but we jump to we're in a culture where we jump to supplements, which may only mm. you know take care of a tiny bit of the the problem, or, or may not be the most effective solution around. Yeah, definitely, and it needs to be taken in context. This is what I think we forget about in the supplement world. You know, I mentioned those two types of inositol before, and then one that I said with D-Cairo, like there's plenty of research that that is not appropriate for women going through IVF because it impacts with egg quality. So, you know, we need to know all of these factors because we need to look at the whole situation. And I think podcasts are amazing, but what we don't know is the unique situation of the female listening. So we really have to be mindful for this black and white advice. And so that's why 
you know, we, when we talk about supplements, we talk about high quality, but we talk about looking at it in context and getting advice from someone that can look at your entire case history and, and health goals and plans for the future. And that's the best way to do it. And you'll get better results that way. Do the strategies differ whether you're trying to conceive or someone who just wants to feel healthy and well when it comes to PCOS? Do the strategies differ? No. Okay. Not, I mean, they're probably going to be additional fertility-based strategies if that's a goal that you're kind of including in your PCOS management and, you know, most most women have a bit of a timeline there. Um, but the foundations would absolutely be the same. Because, like, next in line is exercise. I mean, again, preaching to the choir. <laughs> you are. But, yeah, in terms of what, what where we go next as a natural treatment, it's it's movement. I mean, movement is just one way to mobilize glucose into your cells, and that's part of it, treating insulin resistance or avoiding high, high circulating insulin and promoting fat burning. Of course. So I know hopefully all our listeners are moving, but it is, you know, you can tick that box as part of your treatment strategy. Yeah. So nutrition number one, exercise two, stress management three. Yeah, absolutely. Or thereabouts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say if you're on the pill, get off it. That could be that could yep. be number one. That could be number three. <laughs> um, obviously, the pill is masking your natural hormonal pattern, and you don't really have a look. You can't really have a close look at the underlying imbalances of PCOS, um, and it is the um, band aid solution. It also is interfering with your gut and. Um, impairing nutrient absorption. So we often see things like magnesium and zinc deficiency in someone that's been taking the pill, especially long-term. So I'd be working with a practitioner to understand how to come off the pill and and what to do to support your body on the other side of that. Mm. Um, And stress management, going back to what we were saying earlier, um, rejuvenation practices which Katie shared at Spartatics Unleashed and I know she's been on your podcast talking about and she's going to be on this podcast again this year talking about those as well so that's high on the agenda too. Oh without a doubt I think a simple meditation or yoga um, all of your um, yeah your sessions that you build into your training program that are your I think rejuvenation or restoration are great words to describe that you know it's not just about swim bike run as I'm sure we understand but it's very easy to one un- to, to, to know that but two to live and breathe that <laughs> <laughs> very true mm. that's really true I have to say the um I mean, those stress management rejuvenation practices tend to be the first one that get dropped from our day when life gets busy. But 100%. really, it's they're the stuff that helps us manage the busy. Well, we always forget that the actual benefits from training come in the recovery. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is the biggest thing to remember. You're not getting the benefits out of the training during the session. You're breaking down all the muscle fibers and causing all the damage. So how do you get better if you never put in recovery or restoration? You don't. You just get worse. <laughs> and that's why we see the overtraining conversation. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, now, one final question that came in from my client who has PCOS, and she she did admit that this question might be better suited to a psychologist, but I wanted to ask you, and it was around self-sabotage. Her challenge is that she says she knows what she needs to do, but when her mood is low thanks to PCOS and she's feeling terrible thanks to the side effects and symptoms, how 
what recommendations or suggestions do you have to help manage the self-sabotaging of it? How do you stop yourself from eating your feelings, which when you're feeling shit? <laughs> mm-hmm. I know it might sound a little bit basic, but respectfully I think it is about the blood sugar control because I don't actually think it's similar to the 330-itis conversation. Like obviously it's deeper than that, don't get me wrong, but you will you will make the wrong choices if you've got poor blood sugar control. Oh, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's all part of the conversation, like why the default is chocolate in week four of your cycle or eating the the refined carbohydrates on day one of your period or whatever it might look like for you. Some women get it mid-month when they're ovulating. They want to eat shit, pardon me, or, or sleep all day or bawl their eyes out. Like it's not it's not simple. I'm not saying that because it's multifactorial. But if you've got great blood sugar control and you're not hangry, we all know that we'll make a better choice. You're much less likely to self-sabotage when you've got those foundations. So I would I would start there. I would start there, definitely. And then I would always make sure that you've got quote unquote healthy options available. If you have Cadbury's top deck in the fridge, you <laughs> eat it. We yes, are I we will. Are not that evolved. <laughs> To be, I hate to be blunt, but we are not that evolved as humans. We, you know, we're very similar to to monkeys. Like <laughs> you will eat it, so yeah. don't buy it. But go and buy a beautiful seventy-five or eighty percent dark chocolate, or make your own bliss balls or keto bites or bloody gluten-free carrot cake with cashew cream ice cream. Whatever floats your boat, like make it and have it there. And we always say like those options have inbuilt portion control because there's no refined sugar, which is just a drug that keeps you addicted and literally makes you eat the whole block of Cadbury's versus using, you know, our natural sweeteners or our um, stevia or monk fruit or even a bit of rice malt syrup. Like, yes, they taste sweet, but those options are full of protein and healthy fats, which are our satiety macronutrients. They actually balance our hormones and you're far less likely to overeat. So true. I could knock a, in my old, in my old life, I could have knocked over a block of Cadbury's very quickly. I reckon I still can. I mean, I can't (laughs) tell you the last time I had Cadbury's, but I can guarantee you that most of us are like we're just one step away from having a sugar addiction if we open the floodgates. Yeah. And it is a drug. It's been shown to be more addictive than recreational drugs like cocaine. Like that's not even – it sounds funny when I'm saying things like that, but it really is a drug that you are just – you know, dying for your next hit of. So if you get rid of the refined sugar and replace it with those healthy alternatives, that's more than halfway there. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of great options for things that you can go and cook yourself on Steph's website at The Natural Nutritionist. Trust me, I have. I know. I have oh. made them. I haven't made them all yet, but I'm on my way. <laughs> and you just got to find something that floats your boat, that ticks that box for you. And that's the best thing about, you know, this lifestyle. No, no one's asking you to do it 100% of the time. You're still allowed a treat, but you've got to acknowledge what is a good treat for you that's a good decision that doesn't unravel everything else you've done. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Mine are the uh, chocolate bite or the bliss balls and mm-hmm. also the Pana, Pana chocolate, yeah. mint chocolate because I don't, ah. I never would eat dark chocolate normally but I love mint chocolate. I can mm-hmm. only eat a square any more than that and I don't feel very well because I've tried that. <laughs> it's, you know, and I get my little fix and I feel and have blood, good blood sugar control. And do you find that you naturally have portion control? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. How life-changing is that? Massively. Massively. But I'm going to talk about to Ellie about that in a few weeks. So. Oh, good. Yes, yes. Um, Steph, if anyone listening would like some more support and help around this, how can they get in touch with you, make an appointment to see you or perhaps one of the other nutritionists at The Natural Nutritionist? Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, our website, our online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So you can contact uh, us directly there or um, give us a call. All the details are online. I'm um, not that long away from maternity leave. I'll probably be on mat leave by the time this episode airs so it won't be me but as you know firsthand Jen Ellie is an amazing practitioner um, and she's available to help anyone who's looking for that individual support whether it be for PCOS or LCHF or just general health um, and longevity so please do reach out and, and stay in touch it's so great to chat with you today Jen you too and all the very best for your impending arrival and the next time we talk to you you'll be the mother of a little one I know I keep saying I'll have my plus one so that's what's happening <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All the best. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Jen. Speak again soon. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.